Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. All right. Well, we're here to do another podcast on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, and we have a very creative, talented, pivot, humorous, and that word can't be highlighted enough, man and Andy Gillihorn. So welcome, Andy. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. There's a lot of things I'd love to cover with you. And uh, why don't you start off by telling us your kind of three-minute testimony, how you, what life was like before Christ and then coming to Jesus, and then you actually meet him. What does the three-minute version of that look like? Well, for me, it's maybe it would be a little bit different. Um, I grew up in the church, and I always felt like I knew God and grew up in the Catholic church, loved growing up in the Catholic church. And my parents, my family was always very active in the church, but also very active in, you know, what I what I came to know were some stereotypes of Catholics. I didn't really come to know those until I went to a Southern Baptist University. Mm. But whatever those stereotypes were, they weren't true to what my experience was. And but was exposed to all different different kinds of uh, denominations and and um, worked at a evangelical sports camp. But for me, it's always it's always felt like I've like that God was there with me, and my my understanding of Him has has shifted and changed uh, over the years. But particularly when I came to college and and heard what people were saying about Catholics in general, mm-hmm. I was like I went through this period of really kind of questioning my faith and questioning the faith that I was brought up in, and just kind of everything was turned upside down. And then I started reading these books that people would recommend. And I was like, wait, why are half of these books by Catholic authors? And then Mm. eventually came to a place where I kind of came to appreciate all of the traditions and stuff that I was raised in. I don't go to a Catholic church anymore, but what the liturgy and and, uh, the love of mystery and embracing uh, doubt and the dark corners that you can't see, what, what that has done for me growing up is I think really helped me in my life. So yeah, it's it's more of a, for me, it's always just a process and my relationship with God and what that looks like is always a work in progress of dismantling and rebuilding mm. of forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, I love what you said there, Andy, because I think sometimes my wife grew up Catholic and I think there's almost this, and it's seemingly changing and maybe you could even speak to that, but I think say 25 years ago to several years ago, I think there was almost like this oh, well, you got saved. You came out of the Catholic church and we had a, such a straight type of mentality and which is not fair by any means. I mean, I've got, you know, in our board for the men's ministry I do called The Gathering, we've, I can't remember not having someone Catholic on my board. And I think there's almost like this shame that was kind of put on the Catholic church, which I think is totally unfair. And I've grown to really appreciate some things about the Catholic church and, you know, Matthew Kelly, who's selling a lot of books and doing well, uh, he's Catholic and, and he's, he's, got some great content out there and, you know, almost directly in between me and you location wise, if I was at my home right now is the Abbey Gethsemane, which is a monastery that has meant a whole lot right. in my life and my relationship with Jesus. So have you been to the Abbey Gethsemane? 
I haven't. Uh, I mean, I know some people who've been, I've wanted to go uh, for a long time, but haven't. And, you know, I, I think the funny thing, especially in a town like Nashville, that is not a big Catholic town, you know, when people say they're Catholic, it's more of what you were talking about. It's kind of like, oh, I'm a recovering Catholic mm-hmm. or something, or I've been saved out of the Catholic church. And for me, you know, like with my exposure, like going to and working at different evangelical sports camps kind of things, you know, I wanted to make sure that all my bases were covered. You know, like when people would say, oh, did you have a day where you said the sinner's prayer? I was like, okay, well, I did when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 years old. I made sure that I had a day like that. But Mm. to me, it's not like that day. I I could point to a certain day where I said a certain thing. And whether or not that there's something magical to that or not, Mm. that doesn't really feel true to my experience where it's more just – I mean, that and the rest of my life, there's a process of every day is a new day to kind of surrender my control over my life and to remind myself that I'm not God, that there is a a power greater than myself who cares for me. And so that's a kind of a, the decision to do that today is just as important as whatever I decided to do when I was at sports camp. You know, what's so funny about you saying that is, uh, so we do in a non-COVID season, we have two big breakfast outreach events every year that we do at a, a local convention center type deal and we get great crowds and you know we have sports people come in we have 9-11 survivor we have former mob boss and it's interesting when we get our response cards when people get a chance to say a next step i've noticed the catholic folks there oftentimes will put i committed my life to christ today and after a while i started realizing like that's part of the catholic community like we're saying it wasn't enough yesterday. Today, I re-upped the ante with Jesus. And what went from like, okay, do they get this to like, wow, this is really cool. I really appreciate their daily stance to want to do something with Jesus. And I think we often overlook that or, you know, think it's a miss or whatever. And I'm like, no, I really embrace kind of where they're coming from. So that's neat that, you, like I said, again, yeah. you, you seem to have a warm embrace of that with your background. So back to the monastery, I want to encourage you, whether that's as a man or you and Jill together or whatever, you need to book as soon as they reopen, because they're not open right now, a trip to the Abbey, whether that's writing, whether that's just time away with the Lord, being with a group of guys and having community. The Abbey of Gethsemane is an incredible, incredible place. And I tell people my head has hit a pillow at the Abbey of Gethsemane more than any other place that is not my home. So it's a great place you need. It's mm. you know probably about a three hour drive for you, if, if that. So yeah, not far. It's not that far, yeah. Yeah, great, great space. So how did you first fall in love with music? I mean, obviously you're, you know, doing it on a number of levels. So was it, you know, hey, you're born and somebody sticks a violin on your lap in the hospital? Or, you know, did you have some crazy story about, you know, like a Mike Donahue has where he has this wreck and he picks up a guitar in a hospital? Or how did you fall in love with music? Who knows how accurate this story is, but the first thing that I kind of remember is coming home from watching Chariots of Fire or something like that. And at least this is what was told to me, is that I came home as a three-year-old or something like that and started playing uh, the theme song, I mean, which isn't really hard. It's like hitting one note over and over again. <laughs> dead, 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 dead. You know, there's other parts of it. But like where my family was like, oh, he just remembered all that in his head and was just able to play it. And so early on, I played piano. I just remember... I don't remember kind of where it started because I don't remember when it wasn't a part of my life, mm. when it wasn't something that I was had an ear for, I guess. But playing piano as a kid and went to Suzuki lessons and all that kind of stuff. And then I don't really think I owned it as my own until I, I, I kind of took a hiatus from playing piano when I was about 12, stopped taking lessons and 
was just really focused on trying to dunk a basketball. <laughs> and so I was playing basketball a lot. And, um, and then, you know, a guitar pretty much just landed in my hands in high school and kind of that musical knowledge from playing piano, I guess had been building up. And once I picked up the guitar, I just, I just loved it and, and never stopped. So that in that time in high school, it's kind of magical. There's lots of free time to, you know, listen, sit in a room and listen to music and pick out songs. And so that's really kind of when I owned it for myself and, and was just started playing it because I loved it. So how's the Duncan the basketball going right now? Are you, are you still doing that or talk about Duncan? Oh man, it was, you know, I, I realized at some point I was not going to make it into the NBA. Uh, and that's when I decided to be a singer songwriter as the next best thing. But, you know, I got to a place where my hands were never big enough to where I could easily palm a basketball. So I got to where I could dunk a volleyball and stuff like that. But the only actual dunk I had in play was like an intramural game. I did it one time and then I got a technical. Uh, that made me feel good. That's all I needed. And then, you know, were you hanging on the rim? Today, were you hanging I on the rim? I can still jump and touch the net. I mean, I'm sure I can, but it's not anywhere close to dunking it. Yeah. So was the technical for hanging on the rim or what'd you do? Well, I didn't realize you weren't allowed to dunk in intramurals. But who cares? I mean, if you like, that's a technical worth getting dunk in front of people that I'll take it Yeah, all day long. No doubt. That is, oh my goodness. That is so great. So talk about the writing process. I mean, I, I really love, you know, I've seen you with Andrew numerous times and one of the traditions of me and my wife, uh, especially in Milford, Ohio, I think you've been there a few times for mm -hmm. the behold Milford, the lamb. Of, yeah. yeah. Behold the lamb of God tour and your wordsmithing when you write songs, I mean, you can write heartfelt, deep, passionate tug on your heart kind of songs. And then you write some of the silliest goofiest. Okay. About a minute into the song, something crazy is getting ready to happen where you just have the crowd and hysterics. How does that writing process go? And are you going into a writing thing thinking, okay, I'm going to write something crazy, silly here, or it's going to be really heartfelt or what does that look like for you, Andy? Oh, interesting question. I don't, I don't know that I go into it with that much intention. I think I go into it with an idea of something that I would like to communicate. And sometimes that comes out as something that's, you know, presented in a way that might make people laugh. And sometimes it's really, really serious and it, you know, but, but um, I just kind of like having the freedom to go either way, sometimes either direction in the same song. Mm. Um, for me, songwriting has been a way for me to connect with my emotions. Sure. Cause I'm, it's not that easy for me to do. So, to be able to connect through songwriting with the full palette of emotions is important to me. Like mm. I, I, I want to honor all of it. And when it comes to the, whatever you want to call them, crazy or silly or funny, I'm not saying that they're funny, but uh, I will. Like I, I rarely sit down and say, Oh, I, I need to force myself to write a funny song. But every once in a while, you know, an idea will come and be like, Oh, that would be an interesting angle. And it might make people, laugh but even with those songs i try to write them in a way where it sounds serious on paper so that if it's not funny and nobody laughs then i have a cover i'll be like oh yeah i wasn't expecting you to laugh i am always kind of creating loopholes for myself in case it's not actually funny wow <laughs> yeah i can picture that that's kind of interesting you know when i think of you and your wife jill who's got again one of the greatest most pure I could listen to Jill Phillips sing all day. I love when you guys have done it, Behold the Lamb of God tour, the um, Baby It's Cold Outside. Is that just fun, like, together to be able to sing that on stage? 
It is, it is a lot of fun. It, it was one that when we were doing a Christmas record together, was, we've always done separate records, like just under our own names. And I mean, we sing on each other's records and stuff, but the Christmas record was going to be the first one that was just the two of us together. And a lot of people recommended that we sing that song on, or put that song on the record. And so when I listened to the original version, I was like, yeah, we, we can't pull this off. The, the lyrics are a little bit too creepy. So, um, I kind of wrote it off. And then finally one night I was like, I wonder if I just changed the words a little mm -hmm. bit to where it's less creepy or maybe just creepy in a different way. I'm not saying it's <laughs> less creepy, but it's just more about an idiot husband being kicked out of the house. Um, then, then maybe we could do it. So it, it's, it's fun. And it's, it's fun that we only sing it, you know, maybe two or three times a year in December. So every year it feels new to, have to figure out how to play the guitar part again. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this before, but I'm going to tell you this. And part of me wants to be the original and part of me is okay. If a bunch of other people have said the same thing, but the big time famous movie elf, every time I see that movie, I'm picturing like you and Jill singing that not, it's not being happening the way it is in elf. I'm switching it in my head and heart. Like, okay, this is actually Andy and Jill doing this. Oh man. That's uh, I don't think anybody's ever said that before, but that's a hard one to, to top that performance in Elf. So that's a huge compliment. Well, there you go. I guess I get credit for being a first. So, well, I'm big on anything I'm about talking about marriage because I think marriage is, uh, I love when Andy Stanley said several years back that the greatest evangelistic tool we have as followers of Jesus is marriages and not perfect marriages, but marriages that are growing and are developing and speaking to God's goodness, but not perfect. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So talk about what that's like. Okay. So Jill, like you said, has her thing. You have your thing. You do some stuff together. We mentioned before we came on here that I really love what you've done with during COVID with this thing called the happy hour. And sometimes you're solo and sometimes mm -hmm. Jill's out there with you and you obviously do things with Andrew Peterson. So what is that like having all these different outlets that you do between yourself, you and Jill, Jill's doing her thing, Andrew Peterson. What is that like, you know, talk about, you know, pros and cons or, or whatever with different outlets of doing music. I personally love it. I mean, it's, I, I love how it changes things up a bit. I mean, when we, when we first started, you know, we got married right out of college and she signed a record deal and I was playing guitar for her and we were both writing for a Christian publishing company. And those first, I don't know, five to seven years of our marriage was just the two of us on the road. I mean, opening for other people or doing shows with other people or doing just Jill's shows. And I was her guitar player. And that was awesome. I mean, I would be Jill Phillips guitar player the rest of my life and be a happy man. Mm. And then when we started having more kids, Jill wanted to be home more. And so I was like, well, I guess I got to find something to do. So that's when I started making my own records again, not really out of any kind of dream to be my own artist, really just as a songwriter, I wanted to get the songs out there, hoping somebody who is legitimate would sing them one day. And then after that, my buddy Andrew asked me to, to uh, come open for him and then asked me to just kind of be in his band as me and him and uh, Ben Shive. And so for those years, it was kind of like whenever, I mean, I was always playing guitar for Jill and I would have some solo stuff. And then whenever Andrew had a show, I would travel with him. So it was, it was a really good balance. And then that just got to be to where it was too much stuff. So I, I officially stopped traveling in Andrew's band a number of years ago. And it, it's kind of morphed into most of what I do is solo shows. And then Jill and I will still do some stuff together. And then we still do the Christmas tour with Andrew. But I I just love mixing it up. There there are I just feel lucky and grateful to be playing music, whether that's 
playing my own songs or playing guitar for somebody else. I just, I love all of it. So mm. uh, to vary it up is, um, has been fun. And what I love about, you know, speaking about marriages, it just so happened that I met my wife at Belmont University. There are a lot of people that were coming to Nashville to make it in the music business. Jill wasn't one of those people. She, she was like, oh, I, I like to sing. And maybe I like to teach music after I graduate. But just so happens that somebody that she's a really great singer and a really great songwriter and somebody from a record label heard it and said, hey, you should do this artist thing. But neither one of us is really driven by ambition uh, in whatever that looks like in the music business. So our whole marriage, luckily, like if it's if Jill's center stage and I'm playing in the background or if I'm center stage and Jill's singing background or whatever, it's. I'm really lucky to be married to somebody who it's really not a competition thing. That has never been an issue for us. Like I'm be just as happy for her successes as mine. And because our, our first priority isn't making it in the music business. It's just always been to be good parents and, and take care of our family and, and be good neighbors and good people in our community. And so the music has just been a, a gift that, you know, however, that however we're making ends meet, that's fine with us. So it's, I, I know that's not the case for everybody, uh, but I was really lucky to marry somebody who is equally as non-ambitious as I am. And, and it's just kind of, you know what, however, let's just pay the bills mm. and be good neighbors to each other. You know, it's, it's kind of hearing you say that it's kind of laughable on one hand because there's just, you know, kind of this loosey goosey, which kind of fits who I see you to be on stage. And yet to me, one of the words I feel like that's becoming more and more popularized in Christian culture is freedom, and we all want it, and so few people seem to have it. In fact, I was on vacation recently, and two different documentaries I watched that really captured me. One was about the Bee Gees that's been released on HBO, and I'm a diehard Bee Gees fan, so I had to watch about the Bee Gees. And then the other one was about Taylor Swift, and when I watch Taylor Swift, who I don't have much interest in, I mean, you know, she's she's got some talent, whatever. But I was blown away at how much she seemed into this like hamster wheel that she couldn't get off that she might want to, but there was just no freedom. And I'm not saying that like I'm trying to speak death on Taylor Swift's life or maybe she's more happy and satisfied and joyful than I think. But I just saw a, a young woman who I thought, man, this is like a a monster, mega huge stages and big platform. And would she get off tomorrow if she could? And I... I kind of left thinking maybe she would. So with what you're saying with you and Jill, and I really believe what you said, that there is not a competition thing. I don't know how that couldn't be the case. I know me, I'm very competitive. So if I was in your shoes and either my wife got ahead of me or vice versa, or we weren't going fast enough together, I might really struggle with that. But your heart seems very genuine and real in that. And I would think you guys have to be exceptions when you got you know, husband and wife tied to music like you guys both are. She's got a job, obviously, in therapy, but man, that has to be pretty unique and stand out compared to how easily it would be the other way. Well, I mean, a couple of things. I am very competitive. It's just not about work. Mm -hmm. uh, like when it comes to sports and games, I'm pretty, I'm very competitive. So it's, it's really the work part is like we, we get to do what we love for a living, whether that's music or therapy. And, you know, I'd like to say that we got to that place by evolving into some amazing human beings. But I think it's just more about the way that we're wired and our, and our personalities and kind of how we just ended up being. When I think of somebody like Taylor Swift, who I think is a fantastic songwriter, mm -hmm. you know, I think her personality is, is going to be driven to 
uh, succeed in a different way than than I am. And I would agree that that puts people in a place, even though it's like highly successful and you're making a lot of money and there's all these opportunities and whatever, we've been around long enough to see those kind of places for people. And as nice as the money sounds or as nice as the you know attention sounds, it comes with its own trappings. And I think Jill and I were lucky to have a lot of failures early on, a lot of ways of kind of slashing those dreams that it was like, oh yeah, I'm kind of glad we didn't, life didn't turn out the way that we mm. dreamed it would mm. in, in that sense, as far as success is concerned, because you see how, how hard it is to, to have a normal life like that. So I think we've benefited from seeing other people around us like that. And it's like, well, as long as we can raise our kids and pay the bills, then we're okay. But I don't think that's of any particular virtue of our own. I think it's just, it's probably easier for us to come by from our personalities and just from ways that we failed at at chasing other dreams pretty early on in our career. What I think is great about that, though, Andy, is I think there's some real simplicity. There's freedom in that. There's life-givingness. There's, you know, you're able to be spontaneous. I mean, I think there is a lot of virtue that if you play it right, comes out of what you're talking about there. So kudos for that, whether that's, you know, intentional or not. So let me ask you, talk about COVID a little bit. Like, obviously, it's something we've all been dealing with. And like I said, I, I've, I've credited and said to numerous friends and music lover fans of mine. I really like what you've done with this happy hour thing. And, you know, you've had like the seventies request time or the, you know, nineties, you know, whatever. I mean, you've done some cool stuff and your own stuff and people can Venmo or PayPal you to request things or whatever. And, uh, um, you know, selling some gear and whatnot. So talk about what COVID has been like, you know, family man, professionally, you know, as, as a man, what, what's COVID been like for you in the last year? Well, it's definitely changed a lot for me. I mean, back in March, when I started to see all the shows kind of get wiped off the board, well, at first for the, those next couple of months and then for the rest of the year, you know, normally I would travel between 150, 180 days a year being on the road. And I think this past year I've done like five events um, total. So it has changed everything. And then the the happy hour kind of live online concerts that I've been doing. We started that back at last March thinking, Hey, here's a way to kind of stay connected with people who would come see shows. I mean, there's just a great community of people. Like when, when you play music at my level, which is not a big superstar level selling out big venues, but you know, playing places where you actually get to meet people before or after the show and get to know people, you make a lot of friends all around the country. So I kind of miss that community aspect of being able to travel and doing shows. So we started it at the beginning of quarantine thinking, oh, we'll do this for a few weeks. <laughs> and then, you know, quarantine just kind of gets extended. And, and before you know it, like last night, I think we did our 58th uh, show. And, you know, that's been wonderful. It's not, it's not a substitution for playing a live show. I miss being with people in person. And it's not a substitution for sure. Like financially, it's, it's definitely been a huge hit. But we've survived, we're surviving, you know, and people are really generous and have, have been a part of it and helped us out and, and buy t-shirts or get to the tip jar. And somehow we've made it work. And when I talk to other singer songwriter friends, artist friends, we're used to uh, having to scrape together a living. And we're also used to having to adapt. I mean, our, our music industry has changed so many times 
just over the past 20 years. I mean, you know, we used to like actually make money selling CDs. Now, you know, nobody has a CD player anymore. Mm -hmm. So we've had to adapt a number of times. So the idea of having to adapt again and the idea of having to trust that God's going to take care of us somehow, we've had a lot of practice in trusting that. And I think that's come in really handy this year where, you know, it's everything's different and it's a pain, but I haven't been anxious about it. It's like, oh yeah, here's another change in direction. Well, I've had other changes in direction before and God's always taking care of me and we're going to be okay. Mm. So, I, I mean, I'll be happy when the time is over, but it hasn't been a, a big fear, a, a big time of fear. I'm just kind of like, yeah, let's, let's do what we need to do. And there's something about knowing that everybody's in it together. I'm like the, the least essential job on the planet, right? When you have the, the list of essential jobs that need to come back, I'm okay. Wait until everybody else is ready to come back before I mm. come back because we're all in it together. But some of that's because I've had lots and lots of opportunities in my life to doubt that I was going to be taken care of and then be proven wrong. Yeah, we're, we're somehow surviving. So I love your it's just another faith building exercise kind of love your perspective there. Hey, let me ask you this and we'll keep this one really brief, but uh, is the community that I see with like you and Gabe and Andrew and your wife and the Andrew Osangas and Jason Gray's and the list goes on and on, you know, Ben Shive, others I'm sure that I'm leaving out is that community is great and is life giving and just fun and blessed as it seems. That's a hard question to answer. Um, I would say in some ways it's, it's more rich than, than could ever be described to anybody on the outside of it. And at the same time, it's, there are just by the nature of work in this town, there could be long periods of time where you don't see each other very much. I mean, I see Gabe all the time because he lives close and, and, and we kind of built in regular things for our routine. But with all those other guys, I love them dearly, and we might not see each other on a, on a regular basis mm-hmm. uh, because regular basis is more even pre-COVID. It's kind of like between church. If you don't like go to church together or have kids in school together, and you then you're not seeing each other on a regular basis. Yeah. So I think it's you know I'm sure it's different than what people see, but it is as real as people would imagine. Sure. I mean, like we're, it's it's not a show. Yeah, like I I really do love all those people, and they're. They're just, I would say the history and the stories mm-hmm. uh, would run deeper than, than anybody could ever know Sure, yeah. on the outside of it. Well, and I'm a guy who loves community and fellowship and we build that within the ministry I lead. And yeah, you guys just seem like you have something super special there. So I want to transition into a little bit of silliness here. So um, I do a thing called the rapid so, five and there are five questions. I just fire real quick at you. So what is your all time favorite childhood snack or cereal, Andy? Oh, the hard thing you put rapid in front of it. I remember seeing these questions and I was like, oh, I should know these so that I can do rapid. But favorite snack? All time. Childhood. Oh, this is probably not the right answer. But what comes to mind is the, the shoestring potatoes that came in a can. I always remember liking those. I'm not guessing you would have said something like that. I kind of picture what you're saying. They're super thin and super crunchy. Is that right? That potato Yeah, snack? I don't I mean... I don't even know why that came to mind, but you said rapid fire. That's just what came to mind. Wait, but I'm interested to know like what you would expect an answer that I like would Like a whatchamacallit candy bar or, um, you know, certain flavor of Pringles or, um, I mean, whatchamacallit or powerhouse candy bar to me are so far and above 
whatever else that I don't even know what would be second, but, you know, sugar corn pops or, you know, uh, Mikey, you know, what was Mikey life, light, regular life cereal or something like that. I don't know. I definitely didn't right. expect You a- know, I don't, I, we weren't allowed to have like sugar cereals growing up. So, so I'm trying to think of actually another answer to this question is I have a horrible memory. And I don't remember a whole lot from when wow. I was a kid. Okay. So I, when I say shoestring potatoes, it's just like because that's what Popped came into in. my head. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why. Maybe I, maybe I need to investigate that. Maybe it's a key yeah. to my past. Well, we're going to get you back again and have a better answer. So what is your favorite book you like <laughs> like to give to other people? I, that, that's making me wonder if I've given ever, anybody a book ever. I know. I was going to say some of these questions. I uh, oh, actually, I have. I definitely have. I definitely have. Wing Feather um, Saga? <laughs> I, I will say – the book that I have gifted more than any other book would be The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. Ooh, I've got that one. I'm going to have to read that. Really? So I need to read that. Yeah, you need to read it. I've got I, it. Sabbatical. I think, um, I mean, I loved it, but it kind of, it helped me put my own music career in a different perspective, which is not what I was expecting reading that book. But also, I had the great privilege of doing a few retreats with Eugene and I just think he's one of my favorite humans on the planet, and uh, he's dearly missed. Amen. Amen. All right. Here's the most important question I'm going to ask you. So your family is on vacation, and if you're like us with six, we got four kids ages 12 to 17, you know, we can never plan perfectly that lunch break on a long road trip. And it gets to that point where somebody's got to go to the bathroom. This is the exit. We got to stop here. We look at the sign, and these are the three choices. We're going to assume you've traveled enough. One of these places is more regional, but your options are McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out Burger. Where are the Gillahorns going? Okay, it's, it's tricky, but it's easy. Take McDonald's off the list. I haven't eaten there in, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Wow. I don't even know if my kids have ever eaten there. But um, So take that one off the list. You're a saint. It would be tight between Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out. Now, the reason why I would say In-N-Out is because hopefully I'm traveling in California. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that In-N-Outs are other places now. The reason why we would do Chick-fil-A is because, I mean, it's good Christian chicken and they have gluten-free options for my wife. In-N-Out go. doesn't have a – well, I guess you could do like a, you know, a burger on lettuce. Yeah. Um, but my choice would be In-N-Out. I would I'd probably pick In-N-Out over Chick-fil-A. Okay, okay. And, and by the way, that's the right answer. <laughs> I Yeah, I think you, you answer it better than anybody I've ever heard answer that question because you definitely gave props to in and out I've had two people say it's overrated, and I totally disagree with that statement. But anyway, um, what is your favorite trendy clothing of all time? Like anything trendy that you bought into hook, line, and sinker, what did you buy into that was trendy in clothing? <laughs> uh, like I'm digging Hey Dude shoes right now, so I, I wear Hey Dude shoes. If you ask my wife or my daughter, they would say that I wouldn't even know what is trendy based on what I wear. So That's I don't know that I have a good track record of doing anything trendy. Um, I will say there was a season in my life when I tried to be trendy, and that was like middle school when Miami Vice was big, and I bought a bunch of genera clothes. They were all pastel colors because I wanted to be like Don Johnson. And then I also like slicked my hair back like Don Johnson. And that did not work out well for me. It, that didn't age very well for me. So maybe that was the end of my trying to be uh, trendy. Uh, I've kind of just worn the same clothes and had the same hair my entire life. So since we're friends um, on Facebook, can you put that as your profile picture today so I can see it later? 
what me and, and Don Johnson. No, you, yeah, you Don Johnson with the slick back, or, Pat Riley hair. Well, the problem with the Pat Riley hair is is that I I remember going to school like in third grade maybe with my slick back hair, and this girl who was a year older than me, uh, who I'd known you know, my whole life. She's like, what did you do to your hair? And it was the one day I, I like did my hair differently. And, and um, I don't think it was a positive statement that she said. And so then the next day I went back to old standards. So there's only one day in my life I ventured out into slick back hair and didn't go well. And I just reverted to the old standard. We're finding and that picture somewhere. it's been that somewhere. way for 44 years. We're finding that picture somewhere. So last question, the mo- and second <laughs> most luck. important one, who's your first celebrity crush? Ooh, um, like I said, I don't have a whole lot of, I don't have a great memory from when I was a child, but, um, I would say it's either Elizabeth Shue or Marissa Tomei. Everybody says Elizabeth Shue. I just, Everybody says Elizabeth Shue. I just interviewed two of my buddies who are doing ministry and they both said Elizabeth Shue. And then that's one of my two Elizabeth Shue. I uh, hope this gets back to her. I know uh, we got, but we got to yeah, do I don't. It must be adventures in babysitting or something like that. It's, cocktail it's, for me. Uh, cocktail. Or Karate Kid. Yeah, I guess. Cocktail. Well, okay. Hey, we're going to have to- I don't to, know that I ever saw Cocktail. Oh, I love her and Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom Cruise working the bar scene. He I, it made me want to be a bartender. So anyway, hey, we're going to have to do a part two of yeah. this because this is so stinking good. But I'm going to have to close for time's sake on this question. Tell us what life has been like and give the listeners- a breath into you and Gabe and the high five. So talk about the high five with you and Gabe, and then also kind of what life's been like the last several weeks since that thing's gone crazy. I noticed that Paul Stanley from Kiss and Rex Chapman, former Kentucky Wildcat great, have both shared your story. Yeah, it's been a little bit crazy. It started out as um, just us trying to be intentional about spending time together, and we kind of made this crazy idea that he lives a mile and a half away from me, that we would walk towards each other and give each other a high five in the middle point. And we said, let's do that every week for 10 years. And we thought, I mean, kind of jokingly said, if we did that for 10 years, one day we might make it onto CBS Sunday morning or something like that. Well, it turns out we only needed like six and a half years to do that. Um, <laughs> but we've been, it'll be seven years this April of walking a mile and a half to give each other a high five every week. And it has, you know, really shaped our lives in, in that we're, we see each other all the time, more than once a week but just a really, really dear friend. And he last September, beginning of September, he was hospitalized with encephalitis and meningitis and lost uh, a lot of his memory, both long-term and short-term. And, um, you know, the the day that he went into the hospital, I got an email from a writer at the Atlantic asking if if she could interview us for a story. And I was like, well, we'd love to do this story, but he's sick right now. He doesn't even know who I am. So we might want to wait a little bit. Well, um, you know, he was in the hospital for a few weeks and slowly is rebuilding his memory. And the good news is like personality wise, he's a hundred percent Gabe. Like my buddy is there. It's just, he has trouble accessing certain specific memories. So that was obviously, you know, that part of the story kind of like, um, accelerated things a little bit and that's what got it on, you know, the, the Atlantic and then on TV and all that kind of stuff. And then people started sharing the story on Twitter and, and um, the amount of time that I spent on social media and like following stuff like that is directly proportional to, to like how disgruntled I feel with life. So I try to stay away from it in general as much as I can. But what has been a good side of it is 
you know, in this world where news has been uh, not the greatest thing for people to look forward to, we've, we've heard from a lot of people saying it's just so nice to see something nice in the news. And hopefully it's encouraging people to be intentional with their own friends and to, to spend time or do something crazy with their own friends to, to uh, be a better friend and a better neighbor. But, you know, as far as our normal high five is concerned, it's just all the craziness can swirl around it and people talk about it. And we were actually doing an interview for a documentary uh, this morning. But uh, the truth is still a Monday morning. It's just me walking and just Gabe walking and we meet in the middle, give each other a high five and then we go play badminton for a couple hours. And that's just kind of whatever is going on in the world. It still comes down to, you know, we're still left with the simple act that we love to do. And thank God he's, he's getting better. Uh, who knows if he'll ever get all his memory back, but it, you know, I wish that he could, but if he doesn't, you know, we're making new memories and it'll be fine. I love that story. And it's been so fun seeing people when I shared it on Facebook, comment about it and, you know, seeing, you know, it got shared like crazy and Steve Hartman's so good at what he does. I love seeing that he did that mm -hmm. story. And like I said, Paul, when, when you have something happen at Paul Stanley and Rex Chapman are two of the people who share it, I mean, come on, that's unbelievable. So, um, you know, I just think it's such a great, you know, testimony to, like I said, what's important to me, relationships. I sent it, you know, our tagline in our ministry is connecting men to men and men to God. And one of my leaders sent me a note back and said, Jeff, I just mapped it. We live eight miles from each other. We got to do that. I said, you know what, this summer sometime, I'll commit. Let's do an eight mile. We'll, we'll walk in between and do like you guys do and do that. So, hey, uh, Andy, one last question. You won't regret it. Oh, I'm, I don't think, yeah, you know, there's no doubt in my mind about it. Since humor just comes to my mind with you in such a good way, what makes you laugh? This is the last question. What makes you laugh? Like belly aching, like this is as good as it gets. Because humor to me is a very much a godly, God honoring thing. So what makes you laugh? I mean, I'll say a lot of things make me laugh. I, I love a great comedian, somebody who can observe the world. And, you know, like I love John Mulaney makes me laugh a lot. But when I think of the belly laughing part, uh, there's a component that kind of has to be there for that belly laughing. And some of that is is uh, a little bit of self-deprecation, like, like not taking yourself mm -hmm. too seriously. Amen. And history. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can laugh with people that I have history with, old Amen. friends, better than I can laugh with anybody because it's just there's something about that shared history whether you're talking about old stories or something, that's just a comforting place with that shared history that, that kind of opens you up to, to uh, laughter even more. So I don't know if that's a good answer to your question. That's but, a great answer. Um, you know, just people looking at life slant, you know, yeah. that, that makes me laugh. That's, that's phenomenal. You know, I, I'm a, like one of the things that really makes me laugh is I love uh, like comedians in cars getting coffee and things where people are outside of a normal setting and Seinfeld's done an incredible job with that. And I could picture you and, you know, any of the guys we've mentioned before sitting around doing something like that in a random, you know, coffee shop playing guitar and telling funny stuff like that. So, well, Andy, we got to, we got to end this thing, unfortunately. And I, I definitely would love to invite you back again. I think we could talk a whole lot more and I got to number of questions we didn't get to. So thank you for the generosity of your time and you've had a full day and uh, I'm a high-fiving you right now from Ohio to your Tennessee spot and really grateful for this time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation.
The Shine FM Podcast Network.